everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you're a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. I hope everyone on this call enjoy the holiday weekend. Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and its Jewish and democratic future. In recent years, we have been raising the alarm on threats posed to that mis mission by West Bank annexation. Even though annexation has been nominally suspended under a pending historic agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, we are not dropping our guard. We must remain vigilant and aware of the ways in which annexation has become deeply embedded in the Israeli political mainstream and the ways in which de facto creeping annexation is being implemented. To that end, we will continue our work in educating our three core audiences, American policymakers in Washington, members and leaders of the American Jewish community, and emerging leaders of the next generation. Last month, our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, received over 18,000 listens, our record for all of 2020. Recent episodes have, inc have included conversations with experts like Ksenia Svetlova, covering Israel-UAE normalization, and Dr. Sarah Yael Hirschhorn, examining the settlement community's response to developments with the UAE. You can listen to these programs on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other major podcasting platforms. IPF Atid, our Young Professionals community, will soon announce the next cohort of Charles Bronfman conveners, a group of highly talented young leaders ages 22 to 39 who receive intensive training on issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to make them better advocates for a viable two-state solution. Despite the ongoing global public health crisis, we are proud to continue this initiative as a virtual program in 2020 to 2021. Finally, Israel Policy Forum continues to provide resources on Capitol Hill through virtual engagement. I encourage you to explore our, our policy resources yourself, including our compilation of congressional reactions to West Bank annexation, which is available on our website at ipf.li forward slash Congress. With Rosh Hashanah less than two weeks away and the presidential election taking place in exactly eight weeks, you will undoubtedly hear from many people asking for your support, and I'm certainly cognizant of that. But we cannot underscore enough the importance of your support today. Our growth in the past year alone has been unprecedented and has taken place against all odds. Despite political conditions in Washington, Jerusalem, and Ramallah, despite the pandemic, despite the economic crisis, and it is all credit to your generosity. To all of our supporters on this call, thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource and voice in the American Jewish community and in Washington, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. Analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict tends to zero in on events in the West Bank. And this dynamic has certainly played out since annexation began making headlines uh, about three years ago. But the Gaza Strip cannot be left out of the question. The area is home to nearly two million Palestinians. Mismanagement of the territory's governance by Hamas, the presence of other terror organizations like Islamic Jihad, and myriad Israeli and Egyptian restrictions on the movement of people and goods, as well as Palestinian Authority sanctions, all combine to make the situation in Gaza extremely sensitive. Coronavirus has thrown one more variable into this unstable mixture. Until now, Gaza had largely been spared from the pandemic, but the Strip now faces a potential explosion in cases, threatening to overwhelm the area's already damaged pu public health infrastructure. This new crisis coincides with the resumption of incendiary balloon launches by terror groups. Now, 
a Qatari brokered ceasefire, staving off a wider conflict with Israel. But the situation could boil over at any moment. To help us understand the situation in Gaza, we are most fortunate to be joined by Israel Policy Forum's policy advisor, Dr. Shira Efron. In addition to her affiliation with Israel Policy Forum, Shira is also a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv and a special advisor on Israel with the RAND Corporation, where in 2017, she founded a unique research program dedicated to Israel. In addition, she was recently named an adjunct scholar at the United States Military Academy's Modern War Institute. Her recent focus includes Israel-China relations and the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Earlier this year, she co-authored Israel Policy Forum's study in search of a viable option, evaluating outcomes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. With that, Shira, thank you so much for joining us this evening in Israel. Thank you, Susie. Shira, in a report you co-authored for RAND, entitled The Public Health Impacts of Gaza's Water Crisis. You identified the situation in Gaza as a, quote, as a state of, emer- of emergency, end quote, owing to the confluence of factors that I mentioned earlier, such as damage to the enclave sanitation and public health infrastructure during wars with Israel and restrictions by outside parties. That was in 2018. And despite all of this, Gaza mostly avoided coronavirus issues until late last month. What was the situation like until late August? And what kept the pandemic from spreading in Gaza as much while the situation has spiraled out of control in neighboring Israel? So thank you, Susie, and uh, thank you all for joining us to speak about uh, mostly COVID-19 in Gaza. Well, I know um, a lot of people are still coping with COVID-19 at home, so I hope everyone is healthy and safe. Um, Yes, it's very unfortunate that the situation since we authored that report in 2018 has not improved at all, um, despite uh, a large number of actors that are trying to improve the situation. Now, in a sense, you're right. Gaza almost avoided the coronavirus uh, coronavirus until August, uh, thanks to its being uh, so isolated from the world. The severe uh, restrictions on access and movement uh, imposed mostly by Israel, but also from Egypt, meant that Gaza was relatively sheltered, which was for the first time in Gaza's history, uh, good news. Um, It it's like, but now, now it's not that Gaza had completely avoided uh, the coronavirus. Uh, it seems ages ago, but in March, March, uh, the two cases uh, that were detected from Pakistan through the Rafah crossing with Egypt, um, they were detected upon entrance um, and immediately put in a field hospital at the border. I think it was national security officials that interacted with them who got infected also. But that was nine, you know, nine cases, pretty small, and Hamas acted very swiftly, uh, creating these quarantine facilities that would never be able to hold large number of people, but were sufficient to distance those infected from the rest of the population. They also closed everything. They closed the schools, the mosques, uh, all venues. Um, and for a time, there was a sign you know, of relief. But I think um, we had a podcast here I, uh, around that. I think, I believe it was late March and early April. And even then we said, it's only a matter of time. It was very clear that the, you know, COVID-19 was going to get to Gaza eventually. And this is what we're seeing now, unfortunately, um, with, 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 the current, uh, with the current outbreak. An individual in the Strip's Al-Maghazi refugee camp has been identified as the cause of the current outbreak of coronavirus in the Gaza Strip. How did this outbreak begin when things seemed to be held at bay for so long? And what makes the current trajectory of events in Gaza so risky? So, you know, there are different... uh, uh, speculations where they're trying to look at what was the source of infection. Uh, they're tracing it to um, this individual that you mentioned uh, and others. Um, as per yesterday, we're talking about a total active cases of 1,054 uh, people, uh, 1,024 out of whom uh, are domestic cases, I meaning it's spread in the community already. Only 30 people came from abroad. Um, through Egypt, probably. Uh, so far, we've seen only nine deaths in Gaza. 
which is probably thanks to uh, Gaza having a very young population, and that is good news. Um, but hopefully it will stay uh, low. Um, the problem is, is that when we see developed countries, uh, very advanced countries with strong healthcare systems, unable to contain the virus, and I'll remind everyone, I'm speaking from Tel Aviv, Israel, a country, <laughs> a developed country with good health system, uh, which is unable to contain the virus. Um, there's no question that Gaza, uh, with the, 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 what you pointed out, the, the numbers, the, 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 how the confluence of factors that you mentioned before, um, cannot... Uh, handle an outbreak. Um, you know, I just, just can remind a few details. Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world, uh, but it's also poor and without the infrastructure. You know, Hong Kong is dense, Singapore is dense, but you can't really compare these places. You have large families. Uh, even when you have those lockdowns, uh, people still get infected at home and we don't have the infrastructure to take people out of the home to a quarantine facility. Um, Gaza doesn't have the basic uh, infrastructure, water, electricity, to allow for sanitation and hygiene. Um, just as an example, on average, there's one uh, washing, there's one sink for every 130 students uh, in Gaza. Official health guidelines, including Palestinian official health guidelines, recommend one sink, one hand washing facility uh, per 30 students. We're talking about 130 students. So, you know, basic recommendations like repeatedly washing hands, you know, now there are sanitation kits and PPE, the protective equipment, but there, of course, there are not enough ventilators. Uh, we don't have, um, there's the, the, you don't have enough medical staff in Gaza, uh, hospital beds, acute shortages. And, you know, the, 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 the public health sector is, t- is really tittering on the brink, but it's not just that. Um, UN, the UN said in, was it 2012, that by 2020, Gaza will not be a livable place. If you look at Gaza now, I would not consider it a livable place. Um, if it wasn't the, for the international community, most of the population would not survive. 80% of the population depends on aid, receive food aid. Um, uh, unemployment is skyrocketing. So I think when you think about these circumstances, there's no question that a serious outbreak in Gaza and the trajectory we're seeing now is very alarming. It sure sounds like it, Sheila. Uh, since this lockdown began in late August, the Gaza Strip's Hamas government has imposed a five-day lockdown of the territory. How do such restrictions impact the stability of Hamas's rule there? So you're right. Um, as the numbers started to peak at the end of August, Hamas enforced this f- uh, five-day lockdown. Um, now the focal points where we see most cases are in the northern Gaza and in Gaza City. So Hamas has both areas under strict lockdown and you have Hamas military wing. You have security people enforcing the lockdown and there are threats for uh, legal proceedings against anyone who would violate them. Even fishing stopped uh, temporarily in those areas. And of course, all over Gaza, schools, malls, mosques, every other public place is closed down. I hate saying that um, as someone who does not support a terror movement. It's a big governance moment for Hamas. Uh, you know, Hamas as an organization, since it took over violently, took over the Gaza Strip, the model was Hezbollah. They said, we don't want to, we're not clearing the trash. We don't care about treating the sewage. Uh, we're not about, you know, cleaning the streets. We are here for the resistance. We are here to protect, you know, to, to fight Israel and to protect our citizens from, our, our people from Israel. It's forced to govern. Um, they are doing it pretty well for now, given the circumstances. Um, the COVID response is being run through a centralized body that's called the crisis cell. The Ministry of Interior uh, said that they would hire uh, 2,500 people uh, to respond to COVID. They already uh, enlisted 500. Uh, The Ministry of Labor lent uh, 300 of its people to the Ministry of Health to assist in testing and other things. So we're seeing... uh, uh, last week, we're seeing real governance, uh, you know, the the, test, the facilities are working, the quarantine facilities are working in the meantime. Last week, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, sent a first delegation to Gaza since COVID started. Uh, it's headed by the Minister of Health, uh, who came to check the needs of Gaza, but it also met with the Hamas representatives there. Um, Qatar, of course, gave more money, and I'm sure we're going to touch on it, a donated PCR machine. And so Hamas demonstrates its ability to govern 
uh, to put politics aside, but interacting responsibly with the PA, and of course, uh, being able to receive some some aid, limited, but from the international community. Uh, this can be a watershed moment for Hamas. Uh, not sure if it's good or bad, but it seems like a big uh, governance moment. Hamas has also warned that the deterioration of the coronavirus situation in Gaza could also lead to an escalation of military conflict with Israel. And of course, until Qatar brokered a ceasefire last week, we also had seen the resumption of incendiary balloon attacks against Israel. What is the relationship between the public health crisis in Gaza and the Israel-Gaza security situation? So, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's a connection. There's also no connection. First of all, Hamas has threatened that if there's a severe outbreak, uh, of COVID-19, and if the health system collapsed, they're going to turn the heat toward Israel. Um, And this was something that the international community condemned, and uh, it is alarming. Um, But I think it's it's important to note that this uh, escalation that you're mentioning now, it actually occurred a little bit before those new cases were discovered. Um, The idea was to gain some advantages for Hamas. Hamas was forgotten. You know, it wasn't on the agenda. They need to stay on the agenda. They wanted uh, some relief, um, some uh, lifting of the siege. You know, Qatari aid was also delayed. Other aid wasn't coming. And the idea was, okay, we don't want to start full war, but let's go for these incendiary balloons. Now, I I think most of the, you know, our listeners probably know this, but if not, (laughs) those incendiary balloons, I don't know if you know what they are. Basically, we're talking about actual children's balloons or sorry, using this, it's condoms filled with helium. You have a flaming rag attached to them and then they let it go. The device surfs the prevailing wind, you know, it goes from the Mediterranean and then it burns a field or a forest or something in Israel. Israel has an underground barrier (laughs) against tunnels, but it has no solution for these balloons. There's no solution. What is Israel going to do? Dispatch an F, you know, an F-16 to handle them? And that's why, in a a sense, it's genius. Um, Now, what I think is worrying here is that once we saw, once 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 it was clear that there's an outbreak at COVID nineteen, it was very clear that Hamas is not interested in the full escalation with Israel. Israel is not interested in the full escalation either. So it was like playing poker, but both sides could read each other. It was very clear that neither side had an interest. And that's why I think they were able to reach a ceasefire pretty quickly. The problem is, as always with those things, neither side is interested in escalation, but one of those balloons would land in a preschool with children in it. Then the road to war would be very, very, very short. And uh, this is what the scary part of it, I think. Um, in practice, it's like what we're used to seeing over and over again. We see those things, you know, from time to time. It just was bad timing, I think, for both sides. Shira, speaking of the ceasefire, what is the significance of this truth? More specifically, what do you make of Qatar's promise as part of the agreement to double its financial support for Gaza this month, including for pandemic relief. Are these outbursts of violence by Hamas and other groups in Gaza an appeal for attention and help from the international community? I mean, yes, absolutely. It gets the attention. It's uh, not a strategic threat on Israel, but it's, it's a tactical threat. It's really disturbing. And uh, it gets the attention, gets the attention, of the, the attention of the international community, and there's no good solution. So it does work. I want to mention about the aid because I, I think that's a really important point. Qatari aid was delayed. So even if they're doubling it for the next month, it's basically paying for the previous month that they didn't pay for. Now, I'm not going to go into this accounting, but um, I think Qatar over the past few years has given approximately $500 million in aid right? So it prevents, we can say it prevents a war. It doesn't have other, any, any tangible benefit. And until when is Qatar going to continue? I don't know. Six months ago, Qatari worth was probably double what it is now. If you look at gas and oil now, it's small change from, for Qatar. But to what end? Until when are they going to do this? And there is no other player in the international community that's going to do it. We hear sometimes there's a, there's a Norwegian project here and something, there's nothing. I spoke with people at the UN. It's either donors fronting money or repurposing money. There's no new money coming in, not for Gaza, 
not for the PA. Uh, there are multiple reasons for that, but you know, the world is in a, in a public health and economic crisis. Also, the international community is fatigued. Without a two-state solution, you hear two voices. Until now, and I've heard this, you know, in back rooms saying, you know, mostly from Europeans. The U.S., of course, is out of the game. The United States under the Trump administration has stopped all uh, funding to the Palestinians. But even Europeans said, you know what, we just can't do this anymore. Israel wants to control the lives of the Palestinians. Israel can pay. We have other problems. We can't do this anymore. Recently, the frustration with the PA has also made some donors question the merit of giving money. They're saying, well, the Palestinians are coming to us. They want our sympathy. Um, They want more money they have money that's their own money. Israel collects uh, tax revenue funds that belongs to the Palestinians. They don't want to uh, coordinate with Israel, so they're refusing accepting money that, that there's there. There's a feeling that the Palestinian Authority's behavior now is tone deaf uh, to the suffering of the rest of the world. So it's, 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 it's really frustrating. And I... This whole idea that 2 million, you know, which we said 80% of the people in Gaza are receiving some uh, aid from the international community, of course, Palestinians in the, the diaspora and refugee camps, uh, of course, uh, the West Bank. How sustainable is this? Um, I'm not sure it is. Um, I've got a couple more, and then uh, I'm going to turn to some audience questions. And I just want to remind everyone, uh, if you would like to ask Shira a question, please type it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we will certainly get to as many of your questions as time permits. Shira, can you just explain to our audience why the Qataris have been playing this role in Gaza? What's in it for the Qataris to be providing all this assistance and be so connected with Hamas? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be speculative. Uh, there's a humanitarian issue here, right? They do want to help. Um, there's also Qatar, in a sense, unlike other countries, it's not um, anti-Muslim brotherhood. But um, we need to look at when this Qatari aid to uh, Gaza started this systematically. And it coincided with um, other GCC Gulf countries uh, that were trying to isolate Qatar. Specifically, you talk about the United Arab Emirates and Saudi. If you remember, about three years ago, they were trying to lock uh, Qatar, uh, to prevent all routes to it. It's a country that's uh, dependent on imports, on food imports. They were trying to um, uh, isolate it completely. Um, there were calls um, in the United States um, to move the U.S. Air Force Base, the largest in the Middle East, from Qatar to another place. Uh, there were calls uh, for basically isolating Qatar. They found a way to come the situation in Gaza. And I'm sure this is not exactly how it goes, but every time, you know, someone from the UAE or Saudi tells the White House, well, those Qataris are evil, you know, Jared Kushner can say, you know, but they're really helping the Israelis prevent a war. And it's a lot of money for them. They really bought themselves uh, an, important, an important seat at the table. Um, they are the main donors to Gaza. Uh, there's um, an ambassador to Palestinians, but he's... Frequently um, visits also Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. You know, they can decide on uh, gas for Gaza, the uh, electricity line. So, so it's probably like, it's probably mi- there are mixed motivations here uh, for, for Qatar. And I think it's played out well, but who knows for how longer they, they will be willing to do it. We don't see indication stopping now, but, th- but there were delays last month. Last point before we get to audience questions, and we have some great questions here, so just be aware. Um, And also on the Palestinian political front, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas recently addressed the heads of a number of factions, including Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, by video at a meeting in the Palestinian embassy in Beirut, Lebanon. What happened at that meeting, and what is the significance of the leader of the PA and PLO engaging with these organizations in this fashion. Yeah. So this was a very big development uh, on the Palestinian front, extremely big development that was not actually reported um, in depth in Israel. I'm, I was quite surprised. Um, so it was a video conference from the Mukata, the, the, the government in uh, Ramallah, uh, and from the Palestinian embassy in Beirut. Um, in addition to... Uh, representatives from Hamas and the West Bank. You also had the Arab citizens of Israel. 
um, PA, Fatah Chairman, of course, Mahmoud Abbas, and leaders of 14 Palestinian organizations. So that was a very big meeting, um, and including you know, Hamas and also Islamic Jihad. Um, now, there were attempts to hold similar gatherings before in the past few years, and they always uh, failed. There were always disagreements about the venue. Uh, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, always insisted they would take place in Ramallah. And other organizations said, no, 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 they have to be outside of the Palestinian territories. So the video conference, in a sense, enabled this meeting to happen. Um, and the idea was to uh, demonstrate Palestinian solidarity. Uh, the idea is that if there's more normalization with other countries, we, at least the Palestinians, have to stand together. Um, Mahmoud Abbas Abu Mazen devoted most of his speech in the meeting to uh, attacking the recent agreement between Israel and the UAE. He said it's a poison dagger, a stab in the back. Um, and he did say that he wants to end the uh, division of, uh, uh, you know, the Palestinian division. Um, but, but they didn't produce any binding agreement. So it was more uh, statements. They did issue um, a joint declaration, but it's not going to uh, translate into reconciliation. So it's largely symbolic, but it was pretty big. Um, they did say that they would uh, establish a united leadership um, to manage the coming month uh, without any timetable. So a lot of declarations, not much action. Um, and also Hamas leader Ismail Aniyeh said that he is calling for internal reconciliation and a plan for a joint struggle. Um, I think what was interesting is that it was sort of organic Palestinian. You had meeting in 2005 in uh, uh, Cairo, the Cairo Agreement. In 2011, you had a reconciliation agreement that was also by Cairo. But this was not mediated by a third party. So that was unique in that meeting. Um, uh, it didn't provide renewed reinforcement of the idea that, uh, you know, Mahmoud Abbas is the, is the leader, in a sense, which was uh, probably uh, good from their perspective. Um, I think we, sort of in the West, we like to talk a lot about elections uh, in the Palestinian territories. If you remember, before COVID-19, we all anticipated elections. There was a debate of, like, how will they hold elections in Jerusalem? Um, no one spoke about elections in that conference. So, um but but it is a big development uh, from uh, an internal Palestinian perspective. So Probably will be more developments. Sorry, we're going to turn down some sorry questions. So Alexander wants to know if public support for Hamas how how has public support for Hamas evolved in the Gaza Strip in the recent weeks? I haven't seen public polling of the last few weeks, but Hamas. Um, scored pretty well on its effective response. Um, there was also a lot of support among Palestinians for anything that Hamas had to do, which meant you know, interacting with Israel. Now, of course, it's indirectly, but they did find uh, ways to um, follow each other. It's, 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 it's a very good question. Um, there's a sense that Hamas is governing, but... The situation is not improving, so I, I doubt that we're going to see really numbers changing. On the other hand, um, the, the strategy of the PA uh, being in some sort of a peace process, uh, it, it doesn't mean like uh, Hamas is losing uh, support. Um, I think a new survey needs to come out this month, so we will, do a little, we will know a little bit more uh, about this. But the numbers have been pretty steady. Yeah? Yehuda Lukacs uh wants to know what is the potential impact of the COVID crisis on Israel? Should Israel provide some assistance to Gaza? Oh. Listen, that's a very, very, very good question. If, if it was not public, I will tell you some things that donors are saying about um, their anticipation that Israel would pay and would give some, but I'm not going to mention any specific countries. Um, Israel's operating in sense like a fundraiser asking other countries, and Israel would give in kind 250 testing kits, it would do something like this. Anything that is very meaningful to give to Gaza, it's going to be very complicated for Israel to do. First of all, politically, even now you see uh, politicians from the right uh, saying things that just don't make any sense not to enable going into Gaza. It doesn't make sense. It's not in Israel's uh, interest to have uh, COVID 
you know, in, in its neighborhood. Um, the problem is that Israel is not coping with COVID well either. Uh, we're on our way to a new lockdown, a uh, record of numbers uh, here. So to assist Gaza, not at the moment. David Yaffe asks, um, he says, you've described a situation in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority, West Bank, that may not be sustainable in financial and humanitarian terms. Assuming Trump, if you assume that Trump loses in November, Biden doesn't take office till late January, and Netanyahu's trial goes on as planned. Also that there will be an Israeli budget and no new elections, so a lot of assumptions. Uh, this suggests no significant new outside initiative before the end of spring 2021. Is the current isolation of Gaza and dysfunction in the PA sustainable if COVID increases? You know, there are a lot of assumptions, but I think it's safe to say that you know, for a long, long time, um, with annexation looming and the Palestinian, the PA, I'm going to speak about the PA for a second. The PA's um, a strategy of uh, not accept, not, co- not coordinating with Israel and not accepting uh, the tax reforms, which meant that they had to cut salaries um, in, in a period like that. Um, there was, a, and, and the Palestinian and the Palestinian assumption was like we'll wait for the um, U.S. election, the presidential elections in November, and then we will reassess. There was a lot of situation; and it would not be able to withstand until uh, November, and actually September. Now we're the month where they have to make a decision because past this month, it's not sustainable. They can't. They can't. They, they will collapse financially. And what do you know? very um, talented at finding ladders to climb down from trees they, they, uh, they climb up on. So there seems to be a workaround and hopefully the Palestinians will accept the, um, the tax revenue funds uh, soon. Uh, what's more is the annexation threat for now is off the table. So there's no practical reason for not accepting it um, despite the statements from Israel. So Sorry, so I, I spoke at length about the fiscal situation in the PA. I don't think it's very sustainable. On the other hand, we keep saying that the status quo is not sustainable and it is proving to be more resilient than we would think. Um, but it's not sustainable. Uh, the fiscal situation in the West Bank is not sustainable. Um, Hamas situation is not sustainable. Um, you are assuming a new initiative and I hope you're right, uh, David Yaffe, um, coming from uh, Prism, uh, uh, Biden administration. But uh, I think where the United States is, it's hardly going to be um, um, a foreign policy priority. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but what are we going to see there? Um, I think also politically, it's going to be complicated in the U.S. Something I'm very concerned about, for instance, the Trump administration has cut all funding to UNRWA. It's the agency that provides aid for Palestinian refugees. It's the one that ensures vaccinations in Gaza, uh, healthcare visits, food aid. Now they deliver food aid to homes to avoid crowd, crowds coming in. UNRWA just had a public fundraiser. I think they, helped, they raised maybe a few million dollars. I'm sorry, it's, uh, they're going to cut down completely. Would the Biden administration with Congress be able to restore aid to UNRWA, a controversial organization? I'm not sure. So I think, uh, I think we're headed to trouble. I hope we'll see a, 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 an initiative coming. I just don't know what the scale of this initiative will be. Um, and I think Israel understands that, that it can um, fall onto its lap, uh, ultimately, um, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I hope there'll be vaccination. I hope the situation will stabilize. But, you know, this, this, this is one strong assumption to make. Absolutely. Uh, Jay Kranis asks, what assurances are there that the Qatari aid is devoted to non-military use? There are a lot of um, there are a lot of restrictions on that. Uh, they know how it's coming. They know um, it's 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 done through coordination with the UN. Um, there are lists of the families that receive that money. It's not a lot. We're talking about $100 per family. There, there are lists of uh, specific families, and it goes to public health workers. Um, I can tell you that you know Qataris come here to Ben-Gurion Airport with suitcases full of cash, but those suitcases don't drive themselves to uh, Gaza independently. So there's a lot of Israeli security uh, oversight over that, uh, over that cash. 
Jonah Nagy asks, what might the termination of security cooperation and ties between Israel and the PA mean for the Gaza Strip? You know, in practice, it doesn't mean much. Um, Gaza is independent. Uh, it's an autonomy, um, uh, in a sense. What it means is that Hamas always, uh, it sometimes has, uh, like we saw uh, last week, it sometimes have um, an incentive to um, incite the situation uh, for its own gain, but they want relatively to keep the quiet in Gaza. They do uh, encourage violence in the West Bank. And an absence of coordination between Israel and the PA makes it harder to um, prevent that escalation in the is uh, originated in Gaza, let's say. We have a few questions, a couple of questions about Mohammed Dahlan. Um, Jean Assi wants mm-hmm. to know if if Dahlan will come back into the picture. Yehuda Lucas Lukacs, does Mohammed Dahlan enjoy gr- grassroots support among Gazans? And for those who are not familiar with Dahlan, you might want to just explain who he is and, and what he's been up to as well. Yeah, Mohammed Dahlan has been a, a deputy guy in Gaza. Uh, his forces were the ones that Hamas threw out of the roofs uh, when they violently uh, took over the Strip in uh, 2007. He is one of the biggest uh, uh, opponents of Mahmoud Abbas in Fatah. He believes since 2011 has been living in the UAE as supported by them financially. This is, by the way, one of the rifts that happened between the UAE and, um, and the PA. Uh, hosting Dahlan um, has created a lot of bad blood with the PA. Dahlan has been, so he's been, you know, uh, making uh, uh, gains, uh, uh, doing business in the Gulf. Um, there's some very weird story between Israel, Serbia, and Kosovo now. Apparently, Dahlan also has Serbian citizenship, <laughs> which is a very weird development in all this, in a very weird story. Um, he is not very popular. Uh, he is popular in some circles in Gaza because he's originally from Gaza, but he's not very popular. He's seen by a lot of people as, you know, a corrupt uh, leader. I think he tried to, he had to endorse the uh, normalization agreement between the UAE and Israel. Uh, he was forced to do it by his, uh, you know, patrons, but it doesn't help him internally, right? Because this is not something that's popular among the Palestinians. Uh, we could see him maybe coming back in some sort of constellation, maybe in an alliance with like someone like Marwan Barghouti, someone who's popular, more popular. He uh, sits in uh, Israeli prison. He's, uh, according to polls, the most popular Palestinian leader uh, now. Dahlan um, uh, can bring the money. He can bring the popularity. If there were elections, there were talk of this. I don't see him gaining popularity now, but I think there's a lot of talk of how this will affect his position in the PA um, and, and in the region. Sid Levine asks, are the people allowed to go to Egypt through the Rafah crossing? And I would just add, what's the situation with the Eros crossing into Israel and how's COVID impacted the ability of uh, people from Gaza to cross into Israel for let's say, medical or uh, business reasons, or there are not that many that are allowed to cross on a daily basis. Maybe you could touch on that, Shira. Sure. So so I think um, for some time, Rafa was more open. COVID changed everything, both from Hamas imposing restrictions and from Egypt imposing restrictions. And I mean, international travel, and this is considered international travel, has been very limited. With Israel, it's very interesting. 6,000 Palestinians from Gaza have permits to work in Israel, to enter Israel regularly. Um, I said before, but this was when I was cut down, so I'm not sure you could hear hear me, 140,000 Palestinians from the West Bank have permits. In practice, we're talking about much large, large numbers that go in and out of Israel. Israel found an arrangement with the 140,000 Palestinians coming from the PA, that they, from the West Bank, that they would be able to stay in Israel for longer periods. So they stay in Israel, they don't go back, there's no infection, um, and they, you know, 
they work in construction mostly. Um, this is very meaningful, it's meaningful economically. 6,000 people doesn't sound like a big number, but it is meaningful in Gaza because we were talking about large numbers. Since COVID-19 started, no one leaves Gaza. There is an attempt now to have the same arrangement for those 6,000 from Gaza as for the, same, for the 140,000 from the West Bank so that they would be able to stay in Israel longer but still continue um, sending money home, which would be, I think, a very positive development if it happens. On healthcare, there is a mechanism now that the UN was able to set up for us uh, um, helping Palestinians from Gaza leave for Israel. Um, the reason it's needed, and that's part of the lack of coordination between the PA and Israel, um, for Palestinians to leave Palestinian territories and go to Israel, they need a referral from the Palestinian Authority, and then Israel can get them. In the West Bank, those Palestinians can say, well, we're not going to the PA. The PA is not willing to give us those referrals because they refuse to coordinate with Israel. So we will go directly to the civil administration, to the Israeli, to the IDF, and get the, the, the permits from them. In Gaza, you don't have the IDF inside Gaza. You needed the PA, and the PA refused to do that. Uh, it's, it's, it's devastating because it's already cost the lives of people, of Gazans. You have children, people that wouldn't be able, it's not, not even for COVID-19, for cancer treatments, uh, for surgery. People lost their lives because the Palestinians didn't take, uh, arrange for referrals. So now the UN, it's news from today. There is a new mechanism that would facilitate these movements. Um, I think the Palestinian, the PA knows it's a uh, very unpopular and, I hope uh, for humanitarian sakes that they, uh, they change this, uh, uh, ch change the, the way they're behaving on this front uh, for now. Roberta Kapilovich uh, asks, what is the Palestinian response or set of responses, especially in Gaza, to the normalization of relations between the UAE and Israel? This is uh, extremely unpopular among Palestinians. Um, their hope that no Arab country, Muslim country, would normalize ties with Israel if the Palestinian issue would not be solved, if there's no meaningful progress, was shattered. Um, and all they can do is express their disappointment, which they have done uh, and are still doing. The only strategy now, they're looking for condemnation, um, both on the leadership part and on the people's part. But where do you take this next? And I, I'm not seeing... Uh, uh, much creative thinking, at least coming uh, now. Uh, Shula Gilad says, maybe the question should not be how Israel can assist Gaza, but rather how Israel can refrain from imposing more restrictions, collective punishments on Gaza. To let things through is not to give. Israel controls entrance and exit points. To allow, quote-unquote, allow fishing is not giving anything to refrain from bombing, even with the balloons, would be enough. How do you respond? So, Shula, I mean, uh, personally, I, I agree with you. I don't think uh, uh, Israel's policy is uh, sustainable. Um, there's clearly a need uh, for allowing Gaza to develop some sort of economy by allowing imports and exports and the movements of people and infrastructure projects and not arguing about one nautical mile here and another nautical mile here in response. Um, unfortunately, uh, Israel doesn't have a strategy for dealing with Hamas. And at the moment, um, they're willing to make some what they think is concessions, compromises uh, that would prevent a catastrophe. But as long as Hamas is in power, and I don't see Hamas going anywhere, um, Israel is not willing to make any big changes. I want to remind you, when Israel engaged from Gaza in 2005, there were talk about an airport and a seaport and, and ideas for Gaza. Where are we now and where were we then? Um, and without those big, big, big things and, and thinking very differently about the situation, uh, nothing is going to improve meaningfully. Sure, I know you touched on this earlier, but Mary F. asks, what can be done to improve the humanitarian situation in Gaza? So, I mean, there's a lot. 
uh, that can be that can be done. Uh, first of all, there needs to be an investment in um, large-scale infrastructure projects. Um, we're talking about desalination of water. We're talking about sewage uh, treatment plants. Uh, those things cost hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and they take long time to build. Uh, a desalination plant took uh, to build in Israel uh, seven years. <laughs> How long that take to build in Gaza? Maybe 15. Um, but these are the things you need to do. Um, I think that UNRWA, despite it being a very problematic organization, and it is very problematic, uh, it's important to maintain the basic services. At least let's maintain schools and, and um, the public health stuff for now. Uh, this is an easy fix, right? We have the infrastructure, you have the organization, you have the spread, you know what they're doing. It also provides employment, but I'm saying just like, let's keep the schools um, and the, and the, and the uh, clinics uh, running. Uh, I think, unfortunately, UNRWA would have to cut uh, other services soon. Um, developments of uh, what we just spoke about, uh, permits. Those 6,000 people that can enter Israel, there are more that can be vetted and be able to work in Israel. Uh, those would be immediate uh, steps that are, uh, I'm not going to say easy, but can be done. At the longer term, you know, there's, there's the, the idea of uh, finding a way to uh, uh, allow Gaza to import and export. Um, at the moment, they can't do it. And as a follow-up to what you were saying about UNRWA, um, Linda Cam asks, uh, she says, I'd like to know what the impact of the U.S. reducing its contribution to UNRWA has been in Gaza also the cause and the impact of the reduction of fuel supplies to Gaza, how many hours of electrical power are people receiving on a daily basis at this point? So I think now it's back to 10 to 12 hours a day uh, with the escalation in violence that we saw. We saw again the three, uh, three four hours a day. Um, it's not that people in Gaza have, a, um, all of them have air conditioning. It is so hot here. <laughs> I can tell all of you that are joining us from New York, it's just, it is terribly hot here. It's uh, 110 degrees, I think, 100% humidity. It is terrible. Um, so the situation is bad. I think we're back at 10, 12 hours of electricity a day, uh, hardly sufficient. Um, but that's what we are today, I believe. But last week, it was three, four hours. Um, and when the winter comes, um, it's not going to be very stable, and we would anticipate probably seeing less electricity. Um, in terms of UNRWA's effect, I mean, the fact that they are unable to provide all the services that they provided. Uh, the clinics they can maintain for now, schools for now, but they had other programs, uh, Cash for Works. Uh, uh, they, they had other programs. They have to cut on all of them. Um, I don't think it will be able to maintain also its schools and uh, public health clinics um, going in now, going to the future. But I, I must say, UNRWA is a, is a problematic organization. Um, but to cut it like that was, was uh, something that a lot of the Israeli security officials also opposed. You know, you could say, well, UNRWA has to reform. Let's give it five years to reform. Let's phase out uh, contribution. Let's think what they can do. Um, on average, UNRWA serves 4 million uh, patient visits per year. All vaccinations in Gaza UNRWA. So think about it. If there's going to be a COVID vaccine, who's going to, who, who's going to make sure uh, people get it? Um, it is it is uh, it is an organization that is uh, severely struggling. By the way, not just in Gaza, also in Jordan and other countries. We forget sometimes that UNRWA provides services in many Arab countries, not just to the Gaza Strip. Um, last question: What role does Saudi Arabia play in the area? Um, except for being, you know, the clout of Saudi Arabia, the strongest tree um, now. Um, in terms of aid to the Palestinians, uh, very marginal. Uh, there's nothing uh, in practice. Um, it seems like ages ago there were a lot of tensions between Saudi and its uh, a desired role in Jerusalem, um, undermining Jordan's special uh, role there. Um, there are 
there's a lot of talk in Israel about Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia had to approve uh, or uh, be okay with the UAE normal, normalizing ties. Uh, Saudi Arabia also would be able to fly over its airspace. Um, so a lot of people in Israel take these as a sign that Saudi Arabia would, that it would be a country to normalize uh, ties uh, soon. I don't think this is coming uh, anytime soon. But, you know, Saudi Arabia is changing. Uh, it's changing. It's not... Um, there was a time when we thought Saudi Arabia would lead the Arab world against Israel. There's a new leadership there, not so new, but very young, uh, leadership that is concerned with other issues uh, way more than it is with Israel. And um, and it, it has also, um, of course, its own bilateral interests uh, with the United States that are more important than ties with the Palestinians or the Palestinian issue. Um, and this is what we're seeing. Of course, this is true now for the uh, Trump administration. I think after November, uh, depending who wins the election in the U.S., we might see some changes and shifts uh, in the region. And um, but But for now... Uh, this is this is where we are. Well, I'm sure we'll be re- revisiting that last point in a future <laughs> webinar. Um, I'm so sure. that's all the time we have for today's Shira. Thank you so much for taking the time during this difficult and very hot moment in Israel to speak with us. Uh, once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you've not already done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once more for joining us today. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings, as well as our special virtual event, The Road Ahead. We'll be hosting another video briefing next Tuesday, September 15th, back at our regular time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, be safe and be well. Shira Hamontada. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, and Shana Tova. Shana Tova Lach.